0: in our midlife, we have to learn how to become a beginner again, over and over again. How do we help people learn how to surf? How do we help them learn how to bake bread? How do we help them learn to do improv? How do we help them speak from a vulnerable place? write a piece of poetry. I mean, the program has a lot of elements to it. It's about reframing aging, about moving to a growth mindset, learning how to navigate midlife transitions, cultivate wisdom, learn how to live a regenerative lifestyle. But at the heart of it is helping people to learn how to become a beginner over and over again. And I promise you that that skill of learning to become a beginner over and over again is the skill that's most wedded and clearly attached to the people who turn out to be 100 years old.
1: Hey, so last time I had my friend Chip Connolly on the podcast, it was a different world and his world personally had just been turned upside down. We were sitting in my studio together. I was living and recording in New York and literally hours before Chip received a phone call telling him he had cancer. He chose to come in and continue with our conversation and even share a bit about where his heart and head were at that moment while also being incredibly present in the conversation and sharing his emerging passion and ideas and emotions, his take on the role of what he called modern elders. Since then, so much has changed. Once again, in our world, on a very personal level, in Chip's, so I invited him to come back and share his journey and we explore how that day shifted everything how the years have been for him from a physical and emotional well-being standpoint but then we really shift gears and chip shares how that early seed of an idea around The deep wisdom and value and sharing and learning and potential for profound intergenerational contribution led to the creation of what's now become a global institution called the Modern Elder Academy with campuses in Baja, Mexico and New Mexico and programming that is building community and changing lives in amazing ways. And by the way, if you're wondering why Chip's name might sound familiar, Beyond earlier appearances on Good Life Project, he's also a New York Times bestselling author, the hospitality maverick, who first built and sold this incredible boutique hotel chain, flatlined on stage while keynoting, then reclaimed and reimagined his life, stepping in to help Airbnb's founders turn their fast-growing tech startup into a global hospitality brand, all before founding the Modern Elder Academy, becoming a board member of Encore.org, and an advisory board member for the Stanford Center for Longevity. If you are in a moment where you're really thinking about what you want the next season of work and life and contribution to look and feel like, this is a don't-miss episode. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life
0: Project. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with 5 different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustoleum. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
1: If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash Project to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash Project, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Man, last time we were in the same place together physically, Your life was profoundly different. My life was profoundly different. The world was profoundly different. We were hanging out actually in my home studio in New York City. As we have this conversation, I'm in Boulder, Colorado. You're not too far. You're at a six or seven hour drive from me in Santa Fe, but you also kind of bounce around between some different places now. And you have been on an adventure (laughs) to say the least. I think we all have though, but I'm just curious. I mean, before we dive in, I really want to explore some of the stuff you've been working on. How have the last few years been for you?
0: (laughs) Well, let's start with, actually, it was almost exactly four years ago when I was there with you, and oh, I had just gotten the diagnosis the night before that I had prostate cancer. Yeah. I, and I was giving, wow, let's see, I was giving a TED Talk at TED headquarters later that day. I think it was the morning I was seeing you, and then later that day giving a TED Talk. Um, it was like, and I just found out I had stage three prostate cancer. So long story short is that piece of my life has changed a little bit and that I only have half of a prostate now. We won't go into it this is not a, a an episode on organ recitals. <laughs> I'll recite the organs that are no longer working like they used to, but what I will say is that my life in the last four years since I last saw you and we did that that episode's been profoundly reflective and profoundly generative. What a nice life, What a good life to be able to be both reflective and generative because the reflection has allowed me to be generative at a stage in my life when a lot of people would say, Hey, you're about to turn 62, Chip. Why don't you just, you know, put your feet up and watch 47 hours of TV, like the average retiree in the United States. (laughs) But that's not what I want to do.
1: Nah. So the last four years have been profoundly reflective and generative, but you've also been on, you've been on a journey of discovery for a, a lot longer than that. I mean, when I think we first connected years before, you were pretty fresh out of exiting a hotel chain that you had built from the ground up. And that also led you tumbling into what seemed like from the outside looking in as a friend, like a series of pretty major crises, but but then also some really amazing possibilities and opportunities. And it was almost like this tumbling of like from, from highs to lows to highs to lows um, that kept dropping you back into you know like these these places of like profound reckoning and reflection.
0: Yeah, well, welcome to midlife. <laughs> mm, <right. laughs> the emotional roller coaster we call midlife, which is the life stage that has the worst brand in the world because the word the word attached to midlife <laughs> is crisis. Actually, let me give it a little frame for this. Um, I'm going to give it a little intellectual frame for it and then a personal frame. The intellectual frame is in the 20th century three new life stages Became popularized, it's not like they didn't exist before, but there wasn't sort of a mainstream recognition of the words that described them. The first one was adolescence nineteen o four the word actually got coined. The idea of teenage years being a threshold between childhood and adulthood became a thing because prior to that, once you hit puberty, you were an adult, so that changed all kinds of things child labor laws, you know public junior high schools and high schools going going mainstream, et cetera. The second life stage that was created in the 20th century was retirement, primarily around the 20s and 30s uh, with the Great, Great Depression, um, with Social Security, with pensions. There was a sense if you're doing backbreaking work, either in the fields or in a factory, you know, after 40 years of doing it, you, you need to retire and roll And so retirement got an enormous amount of social and government support. The third life stage that actually got created in the 20th century is really a function of the fact that the um, longevity in the United States and and generally around the world grew by 30 years in the 20th century it was 47 years old in the year 1900 and then it was 77 years old by the year 2000 so what got created there was midlife there's this whole new era of like okay well midlife is often in your 40s or 50s and and now actually it's considered 35 to 75 according to sociologists midlife is this era that is sort of the black hole of adult development. You know, you go into it and there's a lot of things going on. So that's the frame to say, I got curious about midlife as a life stage because of my personal experience, but then also because of the sense I, I had, which is these other two life stages, adolescence and retirement, got a lot of government support, academic research, et cetera. Midlife has gotten so much less. And so my own personal story was this, you know, I was running my boutique hotel company, Joie de Vive. It was second largest in the U.S. It was based in San Francisco. We had 52 boutique hotels around California. I loved it until I hated it. And I was running out of cash during the great recession. I had my long-term relationship ending. My foster son, you know, who's, was an adult at that point, going to prison wrongfully. Um, my best, one of my best friends, whose name is Chip, weirdly enough committed committing suicide one of five friends of mine during that time, during the Great Recession, that, that actually took their life. So I was like, wow, everything that could go wrong was going wrong. And um, I got to the other side of it, but I also had this NDE in the middle of that. I had a, an allergic reaction to an antibiotic after breaking my ankle and, and getting a bacterial infection in my leg. I didn't know how to metabolize all the life quakes. You know, That's what Bruce Feiler, life mm-hmm. is in the transitions, is on our MEA faculty. Um, he calls it life so I was having uh, like multiple life quakes at the same time, and all I could do was just to you know rely on one of my best friends, who's who's a you know a, an executive and life coach, Vanda, and she talked me down from you know literally feeling like I wanted to go jump from the Golden Gate Bridge, and I got to the other side because the ND, NDE helped me to reconnect with a book that I'd always appreciated, which was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning.
1: Before we go there, NDE, what, what is that?
0: NDE means near-death experience. Um, what it actually means in my case was over the course of 90 minutes after giving a speech in St. Louis, I went flatline. Um, so I, I didn't have a heart rate uh, nine different times in 90 minutes. Some of those times, the heart rate came back after 10 seconds or 60 seconds. Sometimes when the paramedics were there, they had to shock me back to life with, with the paddles on my chest. So yeah, what an experience! Sort of go to the other side um, at forty-seven years old. Little did I know at the time that um, there's research that's called the U curve of happiness, which I find pretty fascinating now, and it's pretty conclusive globally that your mileage may vary, but the low point in life satisfaction as an adult is forty-seven point two. And I was I was not quite forty-seven point two, but I was not I was like forty-seven point six when I had the flatline experience. So, what happened was that the Flatline experience woke me up to. I was in the hospital for a couple of days while they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Um, and I had Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, in my backpack. And I, I read it again. I'd read it many times before, but I never read it right after having an NDE. And I was not in a concentration camp, which is what he writes about so poignantly, but I was in a prison of my own mind. And I really felt in midlife that I didn't have options. And I felt like this company I'd been running for 22 years that was defining my identity and my self-esteem was something I could not walk away from. And lo and behold, you know, dying wakes you up to how you want to live. And that's what happened for me. I, was, I had that experience and I ultimately sold, sold the company for you know not a lot of money, bottom of the Great Recession. But I got my get out of jail free card, so to speak. And then I had the two years and... I think when we first started spending some time together, uh, you know, I had two years to write a book called Emotional Equations. Like, I was fascinated by festivals and hot springs, so I just went, yeah, I, I just said, I want to go and learn everything I can about festivals and hot springs, and so I did, and that was just amazing. And then, out of the blue, I got a call from you know the three founders of Airbnb 10 years ago when it was just a tiny little startup that almost nobody had heard of. And they said, we, we're growing globally. We, we, we need somebody like you to ultimately, to, they called me the modern elder because they said they were looking for someone who was as curious as they are wise. And that's when I had the other experience in midlife. So my first experience in midlife was like, oh man, midlife sucks. And then my second experience in midlife, which lasted from around 52 till around 59 uh, or 60 when I was Airbnb helping them full-time and then as an advisor, I saw the upside of midlife. So that's what's interesting to me today is like, okay, midlife has many shades.
1: There's so many things to peel away there also. You know, it's you know, what you described in this early, the earlier transition was what from the outside looking in, so many people would probably have looked at you and said, oh, what a life he's built. You know, checking the box of success, boom, 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 boom. Like he's doing all these incredible things. And it's just such a powerful reminder, I think also. That, you know, we don't know what somebody's own unique internal lived experience is, even if from the outside looking in, it seems like they've got all the indicia of success and happiness and contentment. And I think we tend to carry around so much of our own sense of self-judgment and shame because like, oh, we haven't gotten or achieved or done what, you know, X, Y, and Z person or group or community has done. And It's like, which just layers on even more unhappiness. And and I feel like that tends to happen the further we march into life also.
0: Yes, comparison is the recipe for suffering. I think that's a very apt Buddhist phrase. And I think that there's an element of, one of the things I think is an upside of midlife and beyond is it is an era um, when we move from the accumulation part of our life to the editing part. And we and as Carl Jung and Richard Rohr, Richard's become a really good friend now that I live in New Mexico part time. Um, famous Christian mystic, they both have famously said that the primary operating system for the first half of our life is the ego, for all kinds of good reasons, and then the primary operating system around midlife shifts to the soul, and yet no one gives us operating instructions about how to go from <laughs> automatic to manual to transmission in this car that we're driving. And yet, in moving to that place of focusing on the soul a little bit more, going interior, what happens is we are less focused on comparison. And that brings us some relief. Brene Brown has become a good friend, and she talks about the great midlife unraveling. And when you hear that, you hear like unraveling. Wow, that sounds bad. like Something that unravels like falling apart. But actually, when I looked at the word unravel. The word RAVEL means something that's tightly wound. <laughs> so unravel just actually allows you to start creating some space in your life and maybe making some edits discern with discernment of what you don't need anymore. You know, the 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 archetype that defines you, the identity that defines you, the mindset that doesn't serve you, the people in your life that, you know, frankly aren't aren't nourishing. And maybe you're not nourishing to, to them either. These are the changes we make in midlife if we're healthy, because what that allows us to do is to look at the second half of our adulthood as an opportunity to start to be a beginner again and try something new.
1: I'm curious at the reason that that we don't start this reexamination or make those changes. And and I actually, like I want to dive into some of the the unique changes and ideas, but you described earlier that midlife is commonly known now as this window from 35 to, what'd you say, 75, 77? 75, Um, yeah. Seventy-five. So that's a forty-year window, which
0: it's a mar the midlife marathon,
1: right? You know, so that is very likely larger than the span of like those two other stages that you described. And I'm curious about the role of rituals um, in Mm. kickstarting a process of re-examination. Because when we hit adolescence, we have rituals for that, right? Oh, for sure. You know, we have a lot of them are faith-based rituals or just, you know, like Sweet Sixteens or- Commencement. Yeah. You have Bartmutz, for Bartmutz for Communion. Right. You've got all this stuff, which kind of says, like, there's a big change happening when we, like, quote, retire, which, like, who knows what that means anymore, right? (laughs) I remember being in a large government job in a past life. And every time somebody retired, a memo went around and everyone would gather and there was a plaque at, like ceremony and a presentation. <laughs> like we had yes. these rituals, you know, right. but the way that you're describing midlife, there's unless I'm missing something, there's no <laughs> moment, there's no ritual that says, okay, so let, let's acknowledge the fact that we're actually making this transition. And let's take a moment to really understand what this means. Am I missing something there?
0: No, you're not missing anything at all it, 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 here's, here's a, a, another frame. I, you know I, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to social sciences. So a word that has recently been popularized is middle essence. So again, adolescence is a word didn't exist in nineteen o four and then actually helping to give it a word, this idea of your teen years, when you're going through identity and physical and emotional and hormonal changes, helped people to see, hey. Adolescence is the threshold between childhood and adulthood. Thank God, you know, a hundred years later, we now have a word called middle essence. Because when you're going through middle essence, which often happens between about age 45 and 60, you're going through physical, emotional, hormonal, and identity transitions, sometimes between the what you could call adulthood and elderhood. Now, to be clear on elderhood, I'm not talking about elderly. That's maybe the last five years of your life. To be an elder basically means you're generally older than the people who, who surround you. So what if we were to actually realize that adolescents needed lots of rituals and rites of passage and schools and tools to help people through a transitional phase in one's life? Similarly, midlife needs that as well. And, and honestly, uh, Jonathan, that's why I felt having lost five friends in midlife, all men, 42 to 52 years old, uh, during the Great Recession and having suicide ideation myself during that time because I just felt like I, I was stuck in a jail. I you know, decided you know, five years ago to create the world's first midlife wisdom school and call it the Modern Elder Academy, MEA, because that's literally what they called me at Airbnb um, in a loving way. <laughs> because we do need rites of passage and, rit- and, and rituals. And If you can create a midlife wisdom school that allows people to have time to reflect on how they can cultivate and harvest their wisdom and maybe repurpose it in new ways and reframe their relationship with aging. There's a a woman named uh, Becca Levy from Yale, and her research is fascinating. She's been able to show over the last 20 years that when people can actually shift their relationship with aging or their mindset on aging from a negative to a positive, you gain seven and a half years of additional life. Now, that is more life, and her research shows, with you know all variables being equal. That's more life than a person uh, gains if they stop smoking at 50 or if they start exercising at 50. So this is a public health question of like, wow, how could we help people live longer and generally happier? Because if you have a better perspective on aging, you often feel better about your, your aging process. Because there's a lot of unexpected pleasures of aging and things that get better as you get older. So long story short is that's why we created MEA, to create the school, the tool, the tools, the rituals, and the rites of passage that help people to understand, if I'm going through midlife, I'm not the only one who's feeling X, Y, or Z. Uh, And we basically believe that wisdom is not taught, it's shared. So how do you create 20 to 24 people coming together? And having life changing conversations around this era of their life. Yeah. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Janice Torres
1: from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash Project to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash Project, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I mean, it's interesting. You brought up this one sort of like pretty powerful piece of research, as you were sharing that, my mind flitted back to, I think it was Helen Langer did this like original research where she basically took people and transported them into an environment that was rebuilt to physically mimic what they had in their, I think it was their twenties and thirties. And they measured all the vital statistics and the cognitive function, everything beforehand. And then after spending time in that environment after, and with no other shift than just like changing the physical environment and having them exist, they're not telling them anything or having them practice anything. There was a profound change in like all the things that we would measure to signify mental and physical health.
0: Yeah. It is fascinating. And, and so much we've had, we've done so little work in this area and partly because historically people didn't live this long. So there was an element of, there's an element, you know, we had three stages in life. You learn till you're 20 or 25, you earn till you're 60 or 65, and then you retire till you die. And and frankly, retirement accelerated mortality by two years for a variety of reasons. So as people are living longer, now of course COVID has affected longevity in all kinds of, you know, you know, profound ways. But you know, coming out of COVID, longevity is going to continue to go back up again. And in the rest of the world, actually, it's interesting, our longevity in the US is much more suffering than the rest of the globe. The, the variation in terms of longevity in the US compared to the rest of the developed world has, has actually, it's like five, we, were, we die five to six years younger than most of the rest of the developed world, interestingly. So long story short is, it's something we need to tap into because we spend billions of dollars, multi-billions of dollars a year on PSAs, public service announcements to stop smoking for good reason. And to start exercising for good reason, but we have no PSAs around the unexpected pleasures of aging or what gets better with age or you know why you should maybe aspirationally imagine that elderhood could be a good thing and it's for all kinds of reasons because you know we have a structural ageism in society in all kinds of ways, so you know that's partly what I feel like I'm earthed to do now is the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of your life is to give it away and I found my gift during midlife because I had the the worst of times and the best of times. Um, I saw my relevance. You know, the elder of the past was all about reverence. I think the elder of, of, of today, the modern elder, is about relevance, and that's why that curiosity is really essential. Because you know, you can't be relevant if you're not up to date on like what's happening in the world. And how do you take that wisdom you may have in you and apply it in new environments? as i had to at airbnb because at 52 i was joining a tech company where the average age in the company was 26 and brian chesky the ceo i was mentoring him i loved it seven and a half years did it did that but i was also reporting to him and he was 31 and i was 52 so what's it like to report to your mentee so it's a fascinating journey and one that we're going to see more of because jonathan over 40 percent of americans today have a younger boss and by the year twenty twenty five, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, the majority of Americans will have a younger boss. So this idea of the dynamics in the workplace of who's mentoring who, and what does it mean to be a mentor, a mentor and an intern at the same time—all of that's fascinating and new, new, a new dynamic. But it does require those of us who are getting older to be open and have a growth mindset around how could I improve and learn in this new environment.
1: I mean, I think it it requires those of us who are getting older, but also at the same time, not, but, and at the same time, every generation, you know, to sort of like look up and down the chain, like in, in age and say, like, like, if I start from the fundamental assumption that every person has value, like what, how does that weave into like where I am in my life, what I'm doing, what I'm trying to create, like, how can we understand what is that, you know, like, and, and somehow integrate, like tap it, unlock it, um, create utility around it. You know, it, it's interesting. There's years ago, we used to run this year long intensive training program. We would bring, you know, like 20, 30, 40 people together from uh, around the world and and work on conscious business. And we used to have retreats. And remember this one retreat, everyone was together and we were up in this big old log cabin in the mountains in Utah. And we're on a lunch break and I kind of look out in the back. And I see this one guy who's in, in this group and and he's like around 20 years old. Another guy who's sort of like in his late fifties, probably around 60 years. And they're sitting side by side. They have a, a vanilla folder open and, or just on their lap. And, and they're in this deep conversation. And so I automatically assume, Oh, what a lovely moment of mentoring that, you know, like this, like, you know, that the younger guy felt comfortable turning to guy in his fifties and, and he was sharing some insights and wisdom, maybe some guidance. And I shared that moment when we came back into group, I said, like, I was noticing this and I thought it was really lovely. And the only guy said, Najee, you got it wrong. I have a kid about his age and I had some questions and I thought I would love his point of view, his perspective. And he was guiding me. He was mentoring me. So I think there's this feedback loop that sometimes we get close to." In you know the, just the inherent value of people living their lives and how much we can help each other regardless of age, that maybe there's an you know, like a, a need to awaken
0: to. No doubt, and I, I I would say that one of the beautiful things I loved about my Airbnb time, where I you know mentored more than a hundred people in the company, was I was off. It was often of mutual mentorship. Sometimes it was EQ for DQ. That's what we used to call it. I supposedly had the emotional intelligence because actually so it is IQ doesn't grow as you age, but EQ can. And so I brought to the table EQ and a lot of my younger mentees who also were mentoring me, they brought DQ, digital intelligence to the table. And we were both better off for it. And I think you know it is time with five generations in the workplace for the first time. And with, again, by 2025, the majority of Americans having a younger boss, it's time for us to create a new generational compact that is dedicated to the idea of creating like an intergenerational potluck. In fact, one of the things I'm working on right now with MEA, with Modern algebra Academy, is something called Generations Over Dinner. And the whole premise, we were doing it with a guy named Michael Hebb who created something called Death Over Dinner, uh, which became a global movement with over a million people. Going we to a dinner with a sort of a Jeffersonian style dinner where people were conversing about topics around death, sort of a taboo topic. Well, what we're doing is we're creating Generations Over Dinner, premise being what if we brought three, four, five, six generations to the table together to talk about some of societal's problems, as well as the life stages that we go through and and what we can learn from each other based upon sharing our wisdom. And the wisdom is shared in both directions from, from old to young and young to old. So we did an exercise. We did a survey of our 3,000 alumni in MEA who have average age 54, people as young as 28, as old as 88. And we asked what percentage or how many of your, your cl- five closest friends who are not family members are either at least 10 years older than you or at least 10 years younger than you? And what we found amongst 3,000 people from 40 countries is that 80% of the friends we have in our life, people who we consider our confidants, are people who are within 10 years older or younger than us. So there's, they're not necessarily generationally in a different generation. You know, that's a real wake-up call to say, how do we start to close that generation gap? Because it's important. You know, Politically, it's important. Socially, it's important. In fact, from a problem-solving perspective, it's important. Uh, there's these great studies out of Europe that, uh, because there's gener- intergenerational teams are even more important in Europe than in the US because there's an older population there. And what they've been able to show is that when you put different generations on a team together in the workplace, uh, you actually have better results because the young brain tends to be focused and fast. And the older brain, as Arthur Brooks wrote about in his most recent book, From Strength to Strength, tends to be more holistic in its thinking. And so you've got fast and furious, you know, for the young person, and a little bit more methodical and maybe holistic and systemic, connecting the dots from the older person. You get a team together that has that kind of cognitive diversity, and you might get the best results out of them.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of like you're taking uh, Daniel Kahneman's, you know, like two thinking systems and yes. <laughs> spreading out the burden of like being able to function optimally with both of those across a team or a group of people, so you can try and get the optimal result. Um, it, it occurs to me also. I mean, the notion of of creating intergenerational gatherings is it, so appealing to me. Um, and I wonder if, if in part, we've lost a lot of that just on a, a family basis because it used to be a couple of generations ago there were it was typical to have three generations of a family living together under the same roof that's just kind of the way it is that is so much rarer these days especially in Western culture so you don't have the opportunity for the energy the stories the wisdom to move between those generations the way you used to
0: it is what's interesting in the United States is that uh, a, re- a recent survey that Encore.org uh, came out with with some academics uh, was showed that You're absolutely right in in the Caucasian community, but in um, the people in BIPOC community, what you see is actually there's more generational living together than actually COVID did accelerate generational living together, co-genning because of, you know, just COVID, (laughs) all the reasons you could expect. And, and yet in the people of color community and in their neighborhoods, you do see it more often. The problem we've gotten to really is there's yeah, there's an element of age segregation, and even if you think about what retirement communities or nursing homes are, they're just putting people out to pasture. They're like warehouses for old people. <laughs> and that's probably the reason like we've like like at that and said, okay, well, MEA is doing something for midlifers. but what happens is you get a little older and you want to live in community, and what if you don't want a retirement community but you want a regenerative community? A place where you feel like you're constantly regenerating yourself because retirement, the technical term retirement basically means to withdraw into seclusion. And a lot of people don't want to do that when they're at that age. So, regeneration basically means how do you recreate something? How do you actually, uh, to be generative is actually often to be able to give to another generation. Uh, Eric Erickson, the developmental psychologist, said that the stage of life that is really midlife and later midlife is defined by the challenge of generativity versus stagnation. And generativity is really about, I am what survives me. And I am what survives me, those five words Erickson spoke, speaks to this idea that at some point in your life, you get to the point where it is no longer about the ego. It is about being in service. And, and frankly, let's be clear that parents have had to be that way from a, a, an, er, an early age in adulthood sometimes. But there's also an era in your late 40s, your 50s, your 60s and beyond, where there's an element of purpose and legacy that becomes even more profound as a North Star for people. So how do we help create that, especially generationally? If people are no longer, because of mobility, living near where they grew up and with their families, then how do we do that in the community where they live? I don't think they do it by living in an age-segregated, 55-plus retirement. (laughs) Um, So that's one of the other things I'm really focused on right now is how do you create these new regenerative communities that that are basically the 21st century alternative to what was the 1960s innovation of retirement communities?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. The idea of just really very intentionally bringing together different generations for the benefit of all but I don't want to skip over what you just shared. Um, you know, the notion of, you know, like as you move further into life, it becomes more about what you leave behind. Um, and maybe I'm, I'm hearing that wrong. Um, because mm-hmm. I tend to have a knee jerk reaction when I hear things like that. On the one hand, I understand it. You know, like we, significance becomes more important to us. Like that. that's where a lot of the energy is at the same time. I'm just going to reflect my own experience here. You yeah. Know, like I'm 56. I'm thinking about a lot of the same things. I don't think about that. And you know, I am fiercely in building mode. I run two businesses now with my wife and like an amazing teams. And we're like, we are building stuff that, you know, hopefully is is impacting a lot of people. There is no place in my mind where the question of I'm doing this because I want to leave something behind that shows that I was here, that leaves a legacy where there's an enduring sense of significance after I'm no longer here, that doesn't enter my, like my day-to-day thought in any meaningful or conscious way. Maybe there's a script running that I'm not aware of, but to me, it's about just how can I be fully engaged and curious and alive and creative and of service in the moment right here and right now. And I just assume that if I can do that, the future will take care of itself am I the weirdo in that? Or like, am I the outlier or is that more common?
0: I Listen, I appreciate, I definitely appreciate your, you know, your candor on this because I, I actually don't think you're the weirdo, but I also think you're in a, in the generative phase and you're ge- to, to generate something is often to create something, not even to recreate it. And when you're in the generative phase, you're in the moment you're, a, and you're in the flow of what you're doing right now. You're not thinking about the future. I think what happens is, you know, I have, I've had two brushes with death, the NDE that we talked about earlier that was related to an allergic reaction to an antibiotic and then prostate cancer, which we also talked about earlier, and stage 3. And so and I have lost a number of friends, you know, in the last few years. And so I think mortality, you know, I've come face to face with it more recently than I did um we're about 6 years age difference. Earlier. And I think the mortality has helped me to recognize that what you just said, which is you're focused on this and you don't really focus on legacy or the future. Once you get to a point where you have less life ahead of you, you do start to spend more time thinking about what are you going to do with that life. And you do focus more on what you're leaving behind. I think you will. If you don't, I don't think it's the end of the world because what I hear. And what I know about you, Jonathan, is you're so engaged. You're curious. When someone's curious and passionately engaged, what you notice is not their wrinkles, but their energy. <laughs> and what I notice, is there's the energy. There's the energy and the presence of the thing that you're doing. And even just being curious and present as someone at age 56 or 57 or 65 or 75, when a younger person or any person, see someone who is curious, passionate, engaged, full of energy and presence, what you may be leaving behind is just the role model that you are on a daily basis. So it's not about having your name on a building or writing a book that people will remember 100 years from now or having kids who go off and do great things. It literally may be the character qualities. One of the things that we really focus on at MEA is who are the people who you most admire in your life? Uh, you know, that you've had some contact with? What were their character qualities that you most admired? What are the character qualities you would like to be remembered for? Not so much the eulogy. I mean, eulogy is interesting, but but more just like, you know, the thing that people will say about you when you're no longer here. And like, how are you investing in those character qualities? This, I'm sounding very much like David Brooks right now. Um, <laughs> the Road to Character was one of his books, as well as The Second Mountain. And, you know, he, he his work weaves very much with our MEA curriculum and what we do. But I do think that's a really profound question that we don't really ask a lot, which is what are the character qualities you want to be remembered for? When I do, you know, work with men, you know, as a mentor to young CEOs and things like that, that is mm-hmm. one of the questions I ask them as a leader. Like what are the five adjectives you want your people to use to describe you? And let's go out and then ask your top 12 people that you work with, what are the five adjectives they think? Would describe you. And then let's compare. And of course, that comparison is usually a painful one. And then the next question we ask is okay, what are the habits or behaviors that you could actually start to just imbue yourself with that will actually allow you to be seen as an encouraging leader, if that's one of your five words? And yet nobody said encouraging. So one of them might be just literally coming up with the idea of like twice a day, out of the blue, you give recognition or appreciation to someone who works with you and that's something you just build into your habits and and so so this idea of of starting to invest in your character is something that i think is a relevant one in midlife and for you as a leader of the two companies that you're leading jonathan that might be much more relevant to you as a legacy than the idea of like well what am i giving to the world 20 years from now
1: it's definitely interesting. And, and and as you're framing it in the context of a leader, my brain is translating that in the context of family. Yeah, for sure. You know, cause those same questions that you asked, you know, like what are the five qualities, you know, like that you want to be known for, you know, you could pose that for a leader and a team, but you could also pose it as a parent or a caretaker and their kids or their brother or their sister. Like, you know, like what if you went out to your nuclear or extended family or chosen family right? And pose that exact same thing. I'm guessing we would all have some level of disconnect no matter how, who we pose that to, um, whether it's in a business context or a deeply personal one.
0: Yeah. It's a little scary to even imagine it because like, ah, but it's a great question because yeah. it actually is so much of life is about what, what we're intentional or conscious about. And, you know, there's so much that's important that we are not very intentional or conscious about. And just, you know, I'm a big Carl Jung fan, taking what's unconscious and making it conscious is part of the process of, I think, of adult maturity and frankly, part of the process of building that character. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit eBay.com for terms.
1: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, Code buttery, exclusions apply. See site for details. As we have this conversation, clearly you're a geek. You study a lot of different <laughs> philosophers, <laughs> scientists, fields of yeah. study. At the same time, you're now sitting like five years into um, your own endeavor. You're sitting on your own pretty deep and pretty fascinating data set like 3,000 people, 3,000 lives. Um, when you look at that, I'm curious, what are the deep insights that you see really bubbling up from now this like substantial group of of human beings? Mm-hmm. What are the commonalities of patterns that you're seeing that maybe we weren't even aware of, maybe you weren't even aware of or, or surprised by before this whole thing started?
0: Great question. Thanks, Jonathan. Um the Dr. Phil Pizzo, who used to run Stanford Medical Center and now and created Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute, which is sort of like we're like the Volkswagen; they're like the Mercedes in terms of uh, they have a much smaller number of people they touch, and they do a year-long program, and it's a lot more expensive. His work, and he's actually now at seventy-seven, a Catholic guy going to go. He's he's a rabbinical student and learning to become a rabbi, studying to become a rabbi. So, long story short, is what Philip Pizzo's work has shown is the three most important foundational qualities for people after age fifty are the following: their purpose, community, and wellness. And Dan Butner, who's a, a teacher, actually fills a teacher in our online program. Dan Butner is teaching at uh, MEA uh, next year in March. The guy who started the Blue Zones or conceived of the concept of the Blue Zones, the idea of longevity pockets in the world and what are the qualities of those places, he says the same thing. So let's look at, let's unpack that for a second: purpose, community, and wellness. Because I've seen this face to face at MEA. So when a person retires. Or they're in the later start of the part of their career and they sort of feel like they're bored or they don't know what's next for them. Especially when you retire, you lose purpose. I mean, there's no doubt about it. it the average person is retiring from something, not retiring to something. And therefore, that's why the, they end up sitting on a couch 47 hours a week watching TV. So one of the most important qualities is to look at, not so get, get so uh, wrapped up on what's my purpose, because actually it sounds like a possession you might have left in the bathroom at the gas station. So it's not purpose is not a possession. Um, it is a verb. How to be purposeful? Asking the question of what are you passionate about? To what end might you be purposeful? Is a helpful one because a lot of people actually, as they get older, are feeling in the need for that. Because especially if, if they've been a parent and they're now an empty nester, that also can lead to a sense of oh, well, purpose was all about you know raising my kids. And now they're okay. And now they have kids and have grandkids. And you know, there's an element of purposefulness that's important. Community is the most important of the three. It's obvious if you retire that, you know, a lot of your social life and a lot of your relational life was built around the people you work with. And if you're no longer in a workplace, or frankly, in COVID, if you're not seeing people as much, community becomes and the loss of community becomes really profound. I've used profound way too many times on this <laughs> podcast but I guess it's like you know hanging out with you makes me feel like it's an important word and what happens is people feel lonely they feel disconnected I would say it's probably the number one thing we've seen at MEA and it's probably the reason we have 26 regional chapters around the world that was not meA's idea that was our alumni in various parts of the world just saying we want to connect with other alums could you create some regional chapters because we want that community connection, what I like to call a social wellness. We tend to think of, and, and that brings me to the third one, the third quality, which is wellness. And the thing that's interesting about retirement and, and is that when people are retiring, understand purpose and community might go away, but you'd think wellness would just get better because you have more hours of the day to work on yourself, to go for a hike or go play golf or you know, go swim or be careful, learn how to cook so you can be a better nutrition. But in fact, Because you lose structure and discipline when you retire, a lot of people actually lose their wellness because the structure and discipline of going to the gym was sort of fit into a normal schedule of like, I got to do it before or after work. And when you lose the discipline and the structure, people lose the wellness. And I like to just say social wellness because that's where community and wellness come together. We tend to think of wellness as a, a, a personal endeavor. You know, my... Nutrition, my sleep, my exercise, but you know the word Ill- illness starts with an I, and wellness starts with a we, and it's interesting that we speaks to wellness on a very important level, which is if you live in a community of of healthy and well people, you are more likely to be well, and some of that social connection that you're having is creating you know heart and mind relational wellness, and um, it's something you got to invest in, and so I would just say. One of the big lessons of our five years at MEA is those are three important qualities. I think another key lesson is this, is one of the challenges for people after about age 45 or 50 is for a lot of us, it's hard to become a beginner again. And the reason for that is because somehow we feel like, you know, you don't look very good as a 57-year-old as I was five years ago, going out learning to surf for the first time because MEA in Southern Baja in Mexico is right near a, a famous surf break. And it's like, okay, well, I asked myself the question, what is it that I know now or have done now at 57 that I wish I'd learned or done 10 years ago? So once I got that in my brain, then I asked the question at age 57, what is it that I will regret 10 years from now if I don't go and learn it or do it now? And that is how five years ago I started learning. And I started learning Spanish because I'd never learned Spanish. I'd le- I learned French in high school. And, uh, I would regret if I'm living half time in Mexico that I don't understand Spanish. I would regret living near a surf break that I'm not able to go and at least learn how to surf, even if, even if I'm not very good. We in our midlife have to learn how to become a beginner again, over and over again. And that is a real subtext of our MEA program. How do we help people learn how to surf? How do we help them learn how to bake bread? How do we help them learn to do improv? How do we help them encircle speak from a vulnerable place, write a piece of poetry. I mean, the program has a lot of elements to it. It's about reframing aging, about moving to a growth mindset, learning how to navigate midlife transitions, cultivate wisdom, learn how to live a regenerative lifestyle. But at the heart of it is helping people to learn how to become a beginner over and over again. And I promise you that that skill of learning to become a beginner over and over again is the skill that's most wedded and and clearly attached to the people who turn out to be a hundred years old
1: and that actually makes a lot of sense to me and and i'm going to ask the obvious question then which is what what stops us because the thing that jumps out to me immediately is ego like you reach a certain point in your life and you're like For sure. i don't want to be seen as that person <laughs> struggling yeah. not knowing like everybody and there's got to be like this element of social ge- like i imagine if you knew that you could learn to surf and there would not be another surfer in the water to be you and a <laughs> teacher, nobody would ever see you until you were like an average, okay surfer. You'd be totally cool with that. Right. But the thought of going out there, like with you know, like a hundred other people trying to catch waves, like from, you know, like 10 years yeah. old to like 30 years old, that there's gotta be a, a huge social context to this um, fear of being a beginner as well.
0: Yes, Exactly. I thought everybody on the on the beach was looking at me. Of course, the other surfers too. And of course, they were for a moment, but they were dealing with their own stuff. So yoga, I, I've always loved meditation. It came to me very easily. Yoga did not. I'm tightly wound and my hamstrings are really tight. And again, because I'm sort of this guy who's hung out in, in the wellness world to some degree, I've also felt like uh, I'm a little bit of an imposter. I'm a poser. And I can't do the yoga poses, but I can pretend like I'm a yoga a yoga enthusiast. Well, what I finally realized is that I had to look at the triggers. So what are the triggers that are stopping us from becoming a beginner? In my case, the trigger was how does it look to other people in a yoga class? And so what I learned with my our mindfulness teacher at MEA, his name's Teddy Dean, and famous famous former uh, pro skateboarder, is that I was like, Teddy, could we do a one-on-one yoga class? three times a week at my place. And as soon as I did that for about three to six months, I realized that my problem in yoga class was I kept my eyes open all the time. I was not going inside my body. I was staring at everybody else. And so what I came to realize is like, I can go into yoga class now and close my eyes and don't see anybody else. When I'm meditating, I have my eyes closed. I'm not comparing. And so I feel a lot more comfortable in yoga classes now Because I feel like I have gotten more confident in my yoga, but also more clear that the purpose of yoga is to go inside, not to be looking around outside. But I had to do a little bit of training and know that my trigger of what does it look like to others was Mm -hmm. going to be hard to solve. And so I I had to look for the workaround. And the workaround was doing a one-on-one series of one-on-one classes. So looking at the trigger. The trigger could be, I feel like I'm going to get hurt. Surfing could be one of those. Like, okay, you know, so you, you figure out, okay, well, what can I do to actually address the trigger? Because the trigger is where we shut down.
1: Yeah. It's sort of like the 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 place where we stumble. And and I feel like this also loops into, you know, Arthur um, Brooks work, who you brought up earlier, like you know, what he describes as the winner's curse, because it's almost like if you have had a really high level of success in any domain in life before this. You like to see yourself as that person who has had this high level of success. Like I am no longer, I'm so far from being a beginner. I am the one that everybody turns to when they want to know how to do this particular type of thing. And then to go back to that place, you know, like to your point, even if social context, social judgment, like even if that fear isn't the central trigger for you, the way you see yourself, like we hold ourselves very often to brutalizing standards. And it's almost like the more that you have achieved in your eyes, at least beforehand, I'm guessing the harder it is, you know, without even regard to social context for you to allow yourself to go back to that place. Cause you've got to basically go to a place where you're saying, I am complete neophyte. Like I am, yeah. I know nothing. And in terms of like our own just sense of self and how we have formed identity often for decades, it's kind of like dismantling that a little bit in the name of creating a more spacious and forgiving like future identity.
0: Let me tell you about a ritual we do at MEA within the first 24 hours that someone's in the workshop. The workshops are usually five or seven nights. And it's a beachfront campus, about five acres. Um, first 24 hours is pretty intense. And we end the twenty-first 24 hours with this thing called the great midlife edit. And it's after have done, having done an exercise in the afternoon where people go and look at about 200 to 300 name tags, each of which, some of them are blank. So you could write whatever you want on them. But most of them, what they are, are their mindsets or identities or archetypes of how you see yourself. I am the hero, or I have to be perfect, or I'm too old to learn technology, or I'm too old to find my soulmate, etc. And we do this exercise where people actually own the name tags, you know, and they put them on their chest. And then we go through an exercise where they actually get to know each other really well by what's on their chest. and you know, uh, being in alignment with each other and seeing, seeing what are these archetypes and mindsets that aren't serving them anymore. And then we all ultimately end up at a fire pit on the beach, um, right at around sunset, just before we do a restorative yoga class. And people have written on a piece of paper, what are the mindsets, the identities, you know, the success, you know, curse identity of like, I have to be, I always have to be successful. I always have to do it right. I always have to look good. Whatever they've put on the paper, they get up, they, they say to the group, this is what I'm letting go of, no longer serving me. They put it in the fire, and the bonfire, and then they turn around and say, here's what I'm replacing it with. So that's an example of, and you know, it's a really powerful experience, especially at sunset. Because what it really says to people like, you know what, I will remember this day. And this is, a ritual is important because it creates a threshold. It helps to say before and after. It also, in a community kind of ritual thing, uh, environment, it provides the social support. And in this case, the fact that you're not the only one who's actually being vulnerable enough to actually put it out there. Um, There's a lot of reciprocation going on. So we need more of that. As a society, we need more of that for people in adulthood. And we we come across as if, like, I've got to look like I've got my life right. Everything's going perfectly or et cetera. Going back to what we talked about at the very start of this conversation is like, man, that feeling that I have to portray something to the world, that it creates this weird compartmentalization. That is often a first half of life kind of thing. And that is why sometimes it is that damn midlife crisis or what I like to call the midlife chrysalis, because between caterpillar and butterfly, there's a chrysalis, just like there's a midlife. It is that gooey transformative chrysalis that's going on, often with circumstances that just feel they're screwing you. That you just say, "Ah, I was able to get on the other side of constantly trying to compare myself." And sometimes, you know, it's the circumstances that actually help you to make the change you need to make in your life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so powerful, and yeah, you know, the idea of um, you know the the chrysalis. So often, we don't sort of like we don't come to the point where you know, like we step into that chrysalis willfully until we're brought to our knees. Um, yeah, and like the, the notion of actually creating an intentional experience that you opt into, um, either before you're there or maybe like <laughs> shortly after. But I'm such a fan of just this sort of like saying there is process for this moment in life, too. Like, we've never we haven't talked about it. There's actually, you know, it seems you seem like there's growing research around it. But the things that if we look back and if we look forward, you know, like the rituals, the the shedding, the re-examination, the centering of of purpose and wellness and community and the questions and the prompts and the exercises around it, like these things really, really matter. They signal to us, like I'm stepping into the next season. And they also probably signal to those around us. And if we can invite, you know, a community to come into it with us, then we we don't have to travel alone. And I think it's just, you know, as we have this conversation at the tail end of you nearly know, like two and a half or so years where everybody's world, no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, no matter where you are in the world, has been utterly turned upside down. There is so much reimagining going on. And there are so many folks in that 35 to 75 window who are probably saying, huh, I've been shaken really, 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 really hard enough to know that what's got me here is not what I want to get me there, but I don't know. I don't know how to handle this moment. So, which is why I love the ideas and the prompts that you're offering, because I think so many of us are in that moment, then we realize or we acknowledge. And the notion that there is guidance, I just think it, it brings hope to like this moment.
0: There's guidance and there's time. And, and the thing about no. the time is the average age of people coming to MEAs is 54. When we surveyed them, The average age they think they're going to live till is ninety. Jonathan, fifty-four is exactly halfway between eighteen and ninety. So, in essence, at fifty-four, you're halfway through your adult life. But generally speaking, the way we think of our lives, we don't think of like, okay, at fifty-four, I have I have just as much adulthood ahead of me as I did behind me. It's like no, we don't think that way, and that's why this is helpful because frankly, if we don't get this right, you end up in this weird downward cycle that, you know, leads to people being cranky and, you know, getting hooked on opioids and, you know, all the kind of social ills, the, the suicide rate for people 45 to 65 today is about 60% higher than it was in the year 2000. So there's a problem.
1: And their support and solutions. And and their their support. Exactly. Thank you. Um, feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So in this container of good life project if i offer up the phrase to live a good life what comes up
0: to me a good life is a meaningful life you know i i learned from victor frankl that in in my emotional equations despair equals suffering minus meaning and so to, so if suffering is somewhat ever present it's you know a, a certain it's the first noble truth of buddhism so that would what that would mean mathematically is that despair and meaning are inversely proportional so i think a good life is a, a life where you can see the through line of your life, you can understand. You know, it's easy with twenty twenty vision to to look at with hindsight how it all wove together. But when you can actually see, even in the worst of times, the through line of how your life has meaning and how it has meaning for other people, both in terms of how you show up with your character, but also how you serve. To me, that's a good life. Hmm. Thank
1: you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode safe, but you'll also love the conversation we had with Robert Thurman about life and spirituality and Buddhism and contribution. You'll find a link to the episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable and chances are you did since you're still listening here would you do me a personal favor a seven second favor and share it maybe on social or by text or by email even just with one person just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those you know those you love those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy tell them to listen then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered. Because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.